This is the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm Molly Gamble, Vice President Editorial, and today I'm spending time with Dr. Esmael Porsa. Dr. Porsa is the President and CEO of Harris Health System, which is the primary healthcare safety net system of Harris County, which includes the city of Houston and Texas. The system includes Ben Taub Hospital and Lyndon B. Johnson Hospital, along with a network of community health centers and clinics. Dr. Porsa, welcome. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Where does this podcast find you? Uh, as you mentioned, Houston, Texas. Great. Well, Dr. Porras, I shared a, just a little bit there in my opening remarks about Harris Health System, but beyond those fast facts and figures, what do you think is the most important thing for our listeners today to really understand about Harris Health? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to do this. I really appreciate it. Um, and not so much specific to Harris Health System, but I would really like to uh, share with our listeners is uh, all the public health systems similar to Harris Health System and what, what they mean to the communities that they serve. You know, we happen to be one of the largest, if not the largest public health system in Texas, uh, but there are several and other states as well. You know, it is true that as a safety net hospital, Harris Health System and other systems like us, we have a statutory mandate to take care of the uninsured and underinsured, that's a given. That's that's why we exist. But there is so much more to a public health system like us and others uh, that serve the same purpose. And I just wanted to very briefly focus on those couple of points. That'd be great. These are major training sites for the future doctors and healthcare providers, nurses, techs, you name it. In our instance, you know, we are in partnership with two nationally renowned medical schools, Baylor College of Medicine and UT McGovern Medical School, both in Houston. We train more than 3,000 students and residents every year. What that means to this community is that currently almost 50% of all the doctors that are licensed by the Texas Medical Board to practice in Houston and Harris County did their training actually at Harris Health System. And that's something that I don't think people appreciate when we're talking about safety net hospitals. You know, you mentioned our hospitals, Bentop, Adult Level 1 Trauma Center, LBJ, Adult Level 3 Trauma Center. They do a lot more than just safety net care of the indigent, the uninsured and underinsured. They provide life-saving care to all Houstonians. And again, I'm using Harris Health System as an example. That's what happens in other large safety net hospitals as well. We are also a huge economic engine to the community, and, and folks don't uh, routinely, you know, consider it. Uh, for every dollar in tax support, for example, that Harris Health System receives, we return almost six dollars back to the Harris County. Last year, that amounted to almost five billion dollars in economic impact to the county, and we also add capacity capacity to the local healthcare ecosystem in terms of our emergency rooms and hospital beds. Yes, we don't have the largest share of the system, but what we do provide really does matter. And I'm going to use an example and then I'll stop. Uh, and this is something really important. And again, something that people overlook when they think about safety net hospitals. And the way I describe it is this. Yes, we have a statutory mandate to take care of uninsured and underinsured. And unfortunately, for a lot of reasons that we can discuss later, 
this population uh, waits uh, because of their uh, adequate access to care until they are too sick and they show up to our emergency rooms or they just show up to the emergency rooms as a habit rather than taking care of some of the routine care in a primary care provider like you and I would. Imagine a situation where Harris Health System or systems like us, safety net hospitals, fail to provide that service, either because we are overwhelmed with increasing number of uninsured and underinsured, or because there is not enough support, financial support for our systems. Well, that population that currently seeks care at the safety net hospital like Harris Health System, they are going to go elsewhere to receive that care. And that elsewhere is a non-for-profit and for-profit hospitals in the area. A couple of things happen. One, everybody else's access to emergent and urgent care decreases because now the emergency rooms, other emergency rooms are inundated uh, with people that were otherwise received care at Harris Health System. And number two, that provision of care to the uninsured and underinsured by non-for-profit or for-profit hospitals, obviously those hospitals are not going to um, take a hit to their bottom line, right? So they have to pass on that cost to someone. Where the biggest consumers, customers of non-for-profit and for-profit hospitals are the insurance companies. So that cost gets transmitted to the insurance companies while the insurance companies are also in not in the practice of losing money. They have to transmit that cost to their customers and consumers, and that's you and I, everybody with a private health insurance. So at the end, what happens is that when a safety net hospital fails to provide the services that it does for the reasons that I just mentioned, the overall cost of healthcare actually increases in terms of out-of-pocket deductibles and health insurance premiums when those costs have to trickle down to everybody else. So that, in a nutshell, is the role that Harris Health System and systems like us provide in the community that a lot of time gets overlooked. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad, Dr. Porosa, that you started there and that you established that context for our listeners, the safety net institutions especially in U.S. cities, can so often go undersung in their value and the role they play in our healthcare system. I really think of them as the best of what healthcare can be in terms of their mission and their alignment with that mission, the people who choose to practice and work in safety nets. That is a choice that one makes to seriously give back to their community um, and the under uninsured, like you said. Just to ensure our listeners understand to Harris Health and what you are working with as CEO, do you mind sharing your payer mix with us? Not at all. I'd be happy to actually, you know, this is this is information for everyone to, to have access to. So almost half of our patients are uninsured, uh, 50%. And there is a large portion of our patients who are also on Medicaid or Medicaid managed care around around 20%. What is left at the 30%, there's about 20%, maybe a little less Medicare and about 10 or 12% uh, private insurance, uh, which really creates, as you can imagine, a, a situation where 
caring for the uninsured or underinsured, those are Medicaid and Medicaid managed care, uh, creates a situation where we cannot address the escalating costs of inflation and everything else that happens to our uh, privately insured patients because we just do not have that volume of insured patients. Mm -hmm. And even that mix and those ratios might even be in flux a bit just because of the Medicaid redeterminations that are ongoing, right? Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I didn't know I'm aware uh, the listeners are. So because of the end of the public health emergency, the folks who for the last three years as a deal that was made with the federal government, nobody was coming off the Medicaid rules uh, because of the additional dollars that the federal government was sending to the states. Well, since the end of the public health emergency, everybody has been put on notice that uh, the states are going to go down through the uh, their Medicaid enrollment rolls and people are going to come off of it. We in Texas, we anticipate that more than 3 million people are going to be impacted. Harris County, unfortunately, this is a number not, uh, that we are not proud of, has the highest rate and number of uninsured residents of the county in the country. Currently, that number is 1.2 million uninsured residents of the county. And we anticipate some of that 3 million people that are going to be impacted enough the Medicaid rules are going to be residing in Harris County. What is the total impact is really remains to be seen. Uh, it's probably going to take us a few months to figure out exactly who's going to be coming off the Medicaid rules. But you're correct. Uh, those percentages are surely to change uh, for the negative. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what, what you just shared, Dr. Kors, I mean, more than 3 million looking to be affected by the Medicaid redeterminations in Texas. And then the highest rate in Harris County of uninsured in the country with 1.2 million, you said, so that number might even grow higher. Um, yeah, thank you for noting that. I think it's something we at Beckers are keeping an eye on. Every state has different timelines for those redeterminations, but like you said, so much does remain to be seen. And I know health systems are, are working hard to try to have people who can enroll or re-enroll uh, do so. Um, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background. You have such a rich background as an internist, a public health expert, public health leader, a system executive at really respected safety net institutions. How have your firsthand experiences really come to shape your philosophy and views on health equity and population health? If there are any specific experiences or moments you can point to as exceptionally influential, I would love to hear about them. Sure. You know, I, I describe myself as somebody who has really basically devoted his entire professional life to, to public health. Uh, is there a specific moment which I think was most impactful? Probably not. I, I would say that it's been an accumulation of experiences. Um, you know, I, I think back about my training. Uh, many years ago, let's not let's not get into the details of how many years ago. I don't want to date myself, but needless to say, you know, when I did my medical school training and even the residency training, we as doctors, we became really, really good at understanding and treating diseases. Really good at you know, understanding the pathology of hypertension and diabetes and, and stage renal disease and 
sickle cell disease, and you name it. You know, it really was not until later on when I uh, enrolled in the School of Public Health, just out of interest, that I, I realized how poorly we were trained, really had very, very little, if any, understanding of the concept of health promotion and disease prevention. We were so focused on treating illness that it, it would really just not occur to us that, you know, that the cliche and balance of prevention is worth a pound of cure. It, it was not in our vocabulary. You know, having gone through the School of Public Health and understanding the principles of population health and health equity, it, it, it was really an eye-opening uh, not, not a single moment, but again, an accumulation of experiences. Because after that, I remember at the time I was still actually uh, providing care inside the inside Harris County Jail. It occurred to me um, what an impact we can have as medical doctors and other providers, uh, rather than just treating the next diabetic patient, the next hypertensive patient. Uh, so yeah, not, not, a, not a single experience, but an accumulation of experiences. I think that's so relevant. And at Becker's, I mean, we've been having some recent conversations about medical schools, the need for some changes in curriculum and how students work their way through medical schools, including the debt they can incur going through that educational chapter. So Dr. Porsa, to your point about the the emphasis on disease management and treatment versus prevention, like you said. It, I know you mentioned it was a few years ago, but it seems like that is a huge opportunity for the next generation of physicians, nurses, healthcare workers to have a bit more knowledge and, and familiarity with that important part of one's healthcare and health health journey. Yeah, so that is true, you know, on an individual level, you're absolutely right, but you know, at the system level, uh, as a nation, uh, we collectively need to, and I know that there, there are, we are taking steps towards that, but the, the steps are painfully, painfully small and slow steps. Uh, but there needs to be a shift in our collective attention uh, of resources uh, and emphasis and focus on more and more disease prevention and health promotion because I mean, and you know this, I know I'm preaching to the choir, probably the listeners know this as well. You know, for the amount of money that this country spends on on healthcare, we should be experiencing much, much better outcomes uh, than we are. And we are not. You know, we spend more money per capita and in totality than any country on this planet. And when it comes to outcomes, we are not even in in, in the top tier. Uh, in terms of our health outcomes. So a lot of things wrong, and I don't want to get uh, going on that tangent because you will never be able to stop it. But let me let me say this, because I think this is really important. I struggle with this. You know, I, I think back about my training and uh, everything that was good and everything that was not so good with it. One of the things that I struggle with in the, in the current training, uh, as I'm thinking about, you know, why is it, that the United States spends so much more money than other nations. And, you know, there's a lot of conversations about 
our overhead charges are so much higher, you know, the cost is this and, you know, administrative cost is that. And all, all of that is probably true. Uh, I'm not saying that there's a single thing, but one thing that I have noticed is the, the transition in the way we think about the art and science of medicine. You know, I remember as a young doctor, how much I took pride in my ability to perform really sound physical examination and, and my bedside diagnosis abilities. And I compare and contrast that to today uh, when our young doctors, you know, finishing medical school and residency, it, it, it seems that they just do not have the same capability, understanding abilities to do the same, you know, and every complaint ends up with a very expensive diagnostic test. You know, every abdominal pain gets an ultrasound, every headache gets an MRI, every cough gets a chest CT scan. And that I think also partly is, is responsible for what we are seeing in terms of the high cost of healthcare. Uh, we, we are so, so concerned about not missing that one in a million chance of a bizarre disease process that we are really just breaking the bank uh, in, in taking care of some of the very routine things that should not be costing so much. Anyways, I, I can talk about this all day long. Let, let's, let's move on. <laughs> I don't blame you. I, I wanted to go back to something you had shared in passing. It sounds really interesting, and I wanted to make sure this didn't we didn't drive by this. But you mentioned working in the prison um, before you came to Harris Health. I believe you spent about half a decade, right, as medical director of Parkland Health and Hospital System Correctional Health Program. Can you tell us about that experience, and also if there are any valuable lessons you gained from that chapter of your career. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, you, so you're correct. Uh, but even before that, I was uh, directly delivering care to the inmates at Harris County Jail for 12 years. So it was probably more like 15, 16 years of my uh, professional careers initially uh, dealing with correctional health. You know, it, it it goes back to the whole idea of uh, health promotion, disease prevention, and health equity. I, I never forget this. You, you asked about a moment that may have been most impactful in my thinking about population health and health equity. You know, it, now that I'm thinking about my correctional health experience, I never forget this one morning. Uh, I was... Uh, early, and I, I always get to work early. It was an early morning and before we getting lined up, detainees. Uh, this was at Harris County, actually in Dallas County Jail. Uh, they were getting lined up to go to court. And the way it works out for those who may not be familiar with the correctional setting is that, you know, in the mornings, everybody who needs to go to court basically goes to court and sits in the waiting rooms waiting for their uh, hearing. So there were two, maybe 300 detainees that were lined up right, in a large area, getting ready to go from the jail through the tunnel to the courts. And there was a slope 
Uh, so it was standing on, on, on the top end of the slope, and so I would look down on folks who were lined up. And, you know, it, it was very dramatic because what I saw was a sea of young African-American male detainees. And it, it, it truly was a light bulb moment uh, in, in my head, realizing that the when we talked about health disparities and health inequities and social determinants of health and wonder why the health outcomes among the different ethnicities are what they are, i.e. our black and brown uh, patients have worse outcomes in just about every disease process that you put your finger on compared to uh, our white patients. It, it is not it is not a genetic predisposition. It is not really anything else other than social injustices that prevail in this country, unfortunately, and, and, and a large part has to do with our correctional system. And, and there's something that, again, unless and until you're actually a part of it, you know, in it, it is really difficult for people to, to realize what a huge impact the correctional system in this country has on the overall health of all of us. You know, the United States, you know, has about... Uh, you know, 5% of the world population. And we routinely incarcerate about 20% of all the people who are incarcerated in the world are incarcerated in the United States. Uh, that is a terrible number. You know, every year about 10 million people get in and out of the jail. And, you know, the science is very clear on what happens when you're incarcerated, the impact that incarceration has on your ability to have, first of all, to obtain a job and then obtain a job that provides livable wages, uh, the impact that it has on your ability to go to college, the impact that it has on your housing. I mean, you name it, you know, when we talk about the social determinants of health, incarceration, probably more than anything else, touches negatively every single one of the social determinants of health. Um, so I guess you can tell I'm very passionate about the topic of corrections and correctional health because I think it's it's a, it's a pillar of the lack of the foundational approaches to healthcare that it's it's missed in the conversations. When we're talking about health equity and population health, it, it, again, it, it's a topic that unless and until you know about it and you're in it, it is really difficult um, to be aware of it. But, but but I think, and you know, I have made it the mission, my mission uh, to speak about this at every opportunity that I get to, to really shine a light on the importance uh, of this issue. Mm -hmm. It's a really important perspective, and it's one that, like you said, is not often represented. And I think to, to your point, too, there's something to be said about how we treat our most vulnerable or the weakest people in our society. 
when they're in prison, the healthcare access they have available to them. And then also when people are reintegrating into society after, after spending time in prison, it's, it's for firsthand. I've, I've some experience too, in seeing how inadequately prepared they can be, um, whether it's for employment, whether it's for education, they oftentimes are just turned back out with the belongings, uh, the bag they went in with, with their clothes and um, housing. So I think also you do not want as a society, people coming back to return to their, their life sicker than they were when they went into prison, right? Right, Dr. Porras, that's, that, that should be, when we're talking about public health, an outcome that you would want to avoid. You know, that that, that is exactly the point. Uh, and I, you know, I, you, you remind me of some of the conversations that I've had in my life with others when, you know, when, when you think of corrections, when people come to the jail, to your point, there are times that actually detainees when they come in contact with healthcare inside the jail, that that is the first time ever in their lives that they have had the opportunity to interact with the healthcare provider. And that is a sad truth. But what a great opportunity uh, for a society to take advantage of that encounter, of, of, that, uh, of that opportunity to impact the health of that individual. Because remember, the folks who go to the jail, you know, they're gonna come back. They're gonna come back to the communities in, in which they reside. If we are able to address their healthcare issues while incarcerated so that they can return to the community healthier, that when they went into the jail, Everybody wins. The individual wins. The society wins. As far as the cost of care, the cost will decrease. And I mean, the, again, the science is very clear. When people leave the jail, if their health care issues are not addressed, the utilizations of the community emergency rooms, it, it, is, it is a staggering. It is extremely high. So why not take advantage of that opportunity? And I say this realizing that not, not everybody uh, accepts that or, or agrees with this concept. You know, I've had people who uh, believe that, you know, when people are in jail, you basically just keep them alive until they leave the jail, that that's your responsibility. I obviously, I disagree with that. But for a lot of reasons, you know, you mentioned it, you know, I think our ethical responsibility to take care of our weakest and most vulnerable and, and beyond that, it, it, it just makes economical and healthcare sense uh, to take care of our detainees when they're incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I want to wind down with a thought from you about, you know, we've talked about health equity in a number of ways throughout this conversation, and we could probably talk about it for days, Dr. Porsa. Um, but, you know, you have such a valuable perspective on this topic, and so often when you start talking about health equity, you get to a point every conversation where you confront the barriers, what stands in the way, whether it's underfunding, whether it's um, a lot of commitments made verbally but not executed. Sometimes it can be dwelling in research and analytics and not putting in solutions and moving into different neighborhoods to provide care. 
but I wanted to check in with you and see what you see as the main barriers or obstacles that can thwart efforts to achieve more equitable health outcomes. I'm sure this list is long. Maybe there's one that isn't acknowledged as much as it should be that you, you can share with me. Yeah, I, <laughs> this is actually, this is a topic that I probably talk about, if not every day, probably every other day. And I talk about it with, with my folks, uh, with, with the people that work with me. You know, as you mentioned at the, at the top of our conversation, uh, I've basically devoted my entire life to the principles of you know, health equity and population health. And, you know, we have a population health department uh, at Harris Health System. And, you know, we, we're focused on health equity. And, and, and it's really intriguing to me that I routinely and repeatedly have to remind folks when you were talking about, you know, what, what is one barrier uh, that I believe uh, is preventing us from moving the needle it is lack of clarity and lack of focus. You know, when, when, when we say, you know, population health, what do we mean by it exactly? Uh, when we say health equity, what do we mean by it exactly? When we say we want to improve health equity, exactly what do we mean by that? Uh, I really believe that if we can create more clarity and focus on what it is that we're trying to do, realizing that no one, I don't care how big of a system you are, I don't care how much resources you have, no one will ever be able to boil the ocean. If we can bring focus to one or two top line, most important, most impactful interventions in an area of our community that is most negatively impacted and you know, be able to move the needle, I think that's what's lacking. Again, a lot of times we fall into the trap of really getting excited, and we should all be excited about the principles of health, equity, and population health, but not to the detriment of losing track, of uh, being able to continuously move forward and onwards. Um, more than anything else, I think I think that's the problem that uh, we locally, individually, uh, and as a society uh, struggle with: lack of focus and lack of clarity among the principles uh, that we are discussing. I appreciate that. I think even as a member of the media, it's something we have to be incredibly careful about because to your point, there's so much support for the cause. There's buy-in. People do want to act on these problems. But like you said, if it's it's how we channel that energy, right, toward really targeted causes, really specific outcomes that are we're working to achieve versus just kind of talking about it in a categorical or blanket term that won't make the progress we want to see in the short term. Exactly. You know, what, what is it that the, a journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step? Right. It is those, it's those incremental, sustained, focused efforts that will pay dividend at the end. Dr. Porras, I want to thank you for your time today. You are a deep thinker. I learned in 
got so much from our conversation. I know our listeners did too. Um, President and CEO of Harris Health System, the primary healthcare safety net of Harris County in Texas. I want to wish you continued luck and progress in all the work you're setting out to do with Harris and as a safety net institution, one of the greats of our, our country. And I hope we can check in with you again soon at Becker's. Thank you, Molly. I appreciate it.